filmul de azi. Mai întâi o să continuăm cu The Social Aspect of the Self Part 2. A Tibetan abbot once told Dr. Jung that the most impressive mandalas in Tibet are built up by imagination or directed fantasy when the psychological balance of the group is disturbed or when a particular thought cannot be rendered because it is not yet contained in the sacred doctrine and must therefore be searched for. In these remarks, two equally important basic aspects of mandala symbolism emerge. The mandala serves a conservative purpose, namely to restore a previously existing order. This 15th century statue of Mary contains within it images of both God and Christ, a clear expression of the fact that the Virgin Mary can be said to be a representation of the Great Mother archetype. But it also serves the creative purpose of giving expression and form to something that does not yet exist, something new and unique. The second aspect is perhaps even more important than the first, but does not contradict it. For, in most cases, wh what restores the old order simultaneously involves some element of new creation. In the new order, the older pattern returns on a higher level. The process is that of the ascending spiral, which grows upward while simultaneously returning again and again to the same point. A painting by a simple woman who was brought up in Protestant surroundings shows a mandala in the form of a spiral. In a dream, this woman received an order to paint the Godhead. Later, also in a dream, she saw it in a book. Of God himself, she saw only his wafting cloak, the drapery of which made a beautiful display of light and shadow. This contrasted impressively with the stability of the spiral in the deep blue sky. Fascinated by the cloak and the spiral, the dreamer did not look closely at the other figure on the rocks. When she awoke, she thought about who these divine figures were. She suddenly realized that it was God himself. This gave her a frightful shock, which she felt for a long time. Usually, the Holy Ghost is represented in Christian art by a fiery wheel or a dove, but here it has appeared as a spiral. This is a new thought not yet contained in the doctrine, which has spontaneously arisen from the unconscious, that the Holy Ghost is the power that works for the further development of our religious understanding. is not a new idea, of course, but its symbolic representation in the form of a spiral is new. The same woman then painted a second picture, also inspired by a dream, showing the dreamer with her positive animus standing above Jerusalem when the wing of Satan descends to darken the city. The satanic wing strongly reminded her of the wafting cloak of God in the first painting, but in the former dream, the spectator is high up somewhere in the heaven, somewhere in heaven, 
and sees in front of her a terrific split between the rocks. The movement in the cloak of God is an attempt to reach Christ, the figure on the right, but it does not quite succeed. In the second painting, the same thing is seen from below, from a human angle. Looking at it from a higher angle, what is moving and spreading is a part of God. Above that rises the spiral as a symbol of possible further de development. But seen from the basis of our human reality, the same thing in the air is the dark, uncanny wing of the devil. Paintings of the dreams discussed on page two, 248, top right the spiral, a form of mandala, represents the Holy Ghost, right the dark wing of Satan, from the second dream. Neither motif would be a familiar religious symbol to most people, nor were they to the dreamer. Each emerged spontaneously from the unconscious. In the dreamer's life, these two pictures became real in a way that does not concern us here. But it is obvious, but it is obvious that they also contain a collective meaning that reaches beyond the personal. They may prophesy the descent, descent of a divine darkness upon the Christian hemisphere, a darkness that points, however, toward the possibility of further evolution, since the axis of the spiral does not move upward but into the background of the picture, the further evolution will lead neither to greater spiritual height nor down into the realm of matter, but to another dimension, probably into the background of these divine figures, and that means into the unconscious. When religious symbols that are partly different from those we know emerge from the unconscious of an individual, it is often feared that these will wrongfully alter or diminish the officially recognized religious symbols. This fear even causes many people to reject analytical psychology and the entire unconscious. If I look at such a resistance from a psychological point of view, I should have to comment that as far as religion is concerned, human beings can be divided into three types. First, there are those who still genuinely believe their religious doctrines, whatever they may be. For these people, the symbols and doctrines click to so satisfyingly with what they feel deep inside themselves that serious doubts have no chance to sneak in. This happens when the views of conscious, consciousness and the unconscious background are in relative harmony. People of this sort can afford to look at new psychological discoveries and facts without prejudice and need not fear that they may be caused to lose their faith, faith that they may be caused to lose their faith. faith. <coughs> Even if their dreams should bring up some relatively unorthodox details, these can be integrated into their general view. The second type consists of those people who have completely lost their faith and have replaced it with purely conscious, rational op opinions. For these people, depth 
Psychology simply means an introduction into newly discovered areas of the psyche and it should cause no trouble when they embark on the new adventure and investigate their dreams to test the truth of them. Then there is a third group of people who, in one part of themselves, probably the head, no longer believe in their religious traditions, whereas in some other part they still do believe. The French philosopher Voltaire is an illustration of this. He violently attacks the Catholic Church with rational argument. Écrasé l'infâme. But on his deathbed, according to some reports, he begged for extreme unction. Whether this is true or not, his head was certainly unreligious, whereas his feelings and emotions seem still to have been orthodox. Such people remind one of a person getting stuck in the automatic door of a bus. He can neither get out into free space nor re-enter the bus. Of course, the dreams of such persons could probably help them out of their dilemmas, but such people frequently have trouble turning toward the unconscious because they themselves do not know what they think and want. To take the unconscious seriously is ultimately a matter of personal courage and integrity. The complicated situation of those who are caught in a no-man's land between the two states of mind is partially created by the fact that all official religious doctrines actually belong to the collective consciousness, what Freud called the superego, but once long ago they sprang from the unconscious this is a point that many historians of religion and theologians challenge. They choose to assume that there was once some sort of revelation. I have searched for many years to, for concrete evidence for the Jungian hypothesis about this problem, but it has been difficult to find because most rituals are so old that one cannot trace their origin. The following example, however, seems to, seems to me to offer a most important clue. Black Elk, a medicine man of the Ogalala Sioux, who died not long ago, tells us in his autobiography, Black Elk speaks, that when he was nine, year old, nine years old, he became seriously ill, and during a sort of coma, had a tremendous vision he saw four groups of beautiful horses coming from the four corners of the world and then, seated within a cloud, he saw the six grandfathers, the ancestral spirits of his tribe, the grandfathers of the whole world. They gave him six healing symbols for his people and showed him new ways of life. But when he was 16 years old, he suddenly developed a terrible phobia whenever a thunderstorm was approaching because he heard thunder beams calling to him to make haste. It reminded him of the thundering noise made by the approaching horses in his vision. An old medicine man explained to him that his fear came from the fact that he was keeping his vision to himself and said that he must tell it to his tribe. He did so, and later he and his people acted out a vision in a ritual using real horses, not merely Black Elk himself. 
but many other members of his tribe felt infinitely better after this play. Some were even cursed of their diseases, cured of their diseases. Black Elk said, even the horses seemed to be healthier and happier after the dance. The ritual was not repeated because the tribe was destroyed soon afterward, but here is a different case in which a ritual still survives. Several Eskimo tribes living near the Colville River in Alaska explain the origin of their eagle festival in the following way. A young hunter shot dead in a shot dead a very unusual eagle and was so impressed by the beauty of the dead bird that he stuffed and made a fetish of him, honoring him by sacrifices. One day, when the hunter had traveled far inland during his hunting, two animal men suddenly appeared in the role of messengers and led him to the land of the eagles. There he heard a dark drumming noise, and the messengers explained that this was the heartbeat of the dead eagle's mother. Then the eagle spirit appeared to the hunter as a woman clothed in black. She asked him to initiate an eagle festival among his people to honor her dead son. After the eagle people had shown him how to do this, he suddenly found himself exhausted back in the place where he had met these messengers. Returning home, he taught, he taught his people how to perform the great eagle festival as they have done faithfully ever since. From such examples, we see how a ritual or religious custom can spring directly from an unconscious revelation experienced by a single individual. Out of such beginnings, people living in cultural groups develop their various religious activities with their enormous influence on the entire life of the society. During a long process of evolution, the original material is shaped and reshaped by words and actions, is beautified and acquires increasingly definite forms. The crystallizing process, however, has a great disadvantage. More and more people have no personal knowledge of the original experience and can only believe what their elders and teachers tell them about it. They no longer know that such happenings are real and they are, of course, ignorant about how one feels during the experience. In their present forms, worked over and exceedingly aged, such religious traditions often resist further creative alterations by the unconscious. Theologians sometimes even defend these true religious symbols and symbolic doctrines against the discovery of a religious function in the unconscious psyche, forgetting that the values they fight for owe their existence to that very same function. Without a human psyche to receive divine inspirations and utter them in words or shape them in art, no religious symbol has ever come in the reality of our human life. We need only think of the prophets and the evangelists. If someone objects that there is a religious reality in itself, independent of the human psyche, I can only answer such a person with this question. Who says this, if not a human psyche? No matter what we assert, we can never get away from the existence of the psyche, for we are contained within it, 
and it is the only it is the only means by which we can grasp reality. Thus, the modern discovery of the unconscious shouts, shuts one door forever. It definitely excludes the illusory idea so favored by some individuals that man can know spiritual reality in itself. In modern physics, too, a door has been closed by Heisenberg's principle of inter interminacy in no indeterminacy indeterminacy shutting out the delusion that we can comprehend an absolute physical reality <sighs> the discovery of the unconscious however compensates for the loss of these beloved illusions by opening before us an immense and unexplored new field of realizations within which objective scientific investigation combines in a strange new way with personal ethical adventure. But, as I said at the outset, it is practically impossible to impart the whole reality of one's experience in the new field. Much is unique and can be only partially communicated by language. Here, too, a door is shut against the illusion that one can completely understand another person and tell him what is right for him. Once again, however, one can find a compensation for this in the new realm of experience by the discovery of the social function of the self, which works in a hidden way to unite separate individuals who belong together. Intellectual chit-chat is thus replaced by meaningful events that occur in the reality of the psyche and for the individual to enter seriously into the process of individuation in the way that has been outlined means a completely new and different orientation toward life for scientists. It also means a new and different scientific approach to outer facts. How this will work out in the field of human knowledge and in the social life of human beings cannot be predicted. But to me it seems certain that Jung's discovery of the process of individuation is a fact that future generations will have to take into account if they want to avoid drifting into a stagnant or even regressive outlook. Hmm. Thank you for listening.